These days, there are a myriad of films that are available for us to download and watch on any given evening. But I'm told they virtually all conform to one of seven basic plot lines. That seems like a serious shortage of stories to me. But then I'm in no position to be critical. I have already confessed to you that I read a ridiculous number of Harlequin romances when I was a teen, and in them there was only one basic plot. One of the common plot lines in the old westerns that some of us watched as kids was revenge. Homesteaders are barely eking out an existence when bandits come through, shoot the man and the son, and leave the woman paralyzed by grief. A world-weary hired gun comes into town, almost certainly played by Clint Eastwood, I mean, who else, and eventually takes up the widow's cause, hunts down the bandits, and kills them in a spectacular shootout. The film has made the viewer deeply empathetic to the widow, and so we are delighted that she's been avenged, and that she no longer has to live in fear that the bad guys will come back for her. Justice safety, a chance to vicariously process some of our own latent anger, and Clint Eastwood all in less than two hours? What could be better? No wonder it is such a common plot line and the basis of so many successful movies. Movies like Unforgiven, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and though without Clint, Django Unchained. But while revenge as a response to being harmed is a common plot, it isn't the only one. I'm thinking of a story of a bitter ex-con who finds himself an outcast from society. Someone finally takes pity on him and welcomes him in. Sadly, he doesn't repay that hospitality with gratitude. Instead, he rips off the one person who has shown him kindness. But when his benefactor confronts him, it's not with vengeance, but with grace. It's the story of Jean Valjean and his host, Bishop Bienvenu, in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. In a profoundly moving scene in front of the arresting officers, the bishop chides Valjean, not for his ingratitude or worse for his theft, but for leaving behind the candlesticks that Bienvenu said he had also given to him. Before Valjean leaves, the bishop implores him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. Instead of the revenge movies Payback and Violence, we have Grace, generosity, and redemption. I was thinking of these two types of stories not simply for their contrasting plot lines, but because of the emotional response they draw out of me. I might finish each of the movies and declare that I loved it, but there would be a difference in how I feel. 
The revenge movie grounds me in a world where cruelty is the norm, justice comes through violent payback, and occasionally the good guy wins. But the candlestick episode in Les Mis leaves me awash in tears and aching with nostalgia for a place where I have never really lived, a place of grace and forgiveness and hope. But it is a place that I've heard of. I think that Jesus would tell me that the place I'm longing for is his kingdom, his very countercultural kingdom, a realm awash in grace and forgiveness and hope. Today we are continuing our series, I Think He Has Something to Say, a distillation of the five teachings that Jesus returned to again and again throughout his ministry. And today we will look at forgiveness. It's an important topic. For many of us, it's central to our faith. But even so, it may not be an easy subject because I suspect I may not be alone in both loving the beautiful doctrine of grace, but also harboring an ugly desire for payback. Perhaps the disciples also shared that ambivalence. Matthew records a time when Jesus was teaching them about resolving conflict and writes, At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. Peter here reminds me of the lawyer we talked about last week who tries to narrow the demands of the law by asking Jesus, but who really is my neighbor? Hoping to have it restricted to just the people that he already gets along with. Similarly, Peter clearly wants a statute of limitations on forgiveness. He probably thinks he is being really tolerant when he offers to forgive a brother or sister up to seven times. And we know that under his breath, he's probably saying, yep, I'll do it seven times, but after that, it's payback time, baby. Jesus' response that Peter is to forgive 70 times 7 essentially means he is to offer unlimited forgiveness. I'm guessing Peter wasn't thrilled with that response. And we may not be either. Why is it that we find forgiveness so difficult? Well, to go back to the movies... If we judge by the films that sell in our culture, we are certainly more drawn to a hero who avenges, often violently, than to a lead character who exhibits humility and forgives. And if that's our media escape, it's hard not to be influenced by the constant repetition of those messages. But it works the other way, too. Studios make movies of that ilk because they recognize that the thirst for payback seems a hard-wired part of our psyche. Psychologists tell us that as human beings, we're programmed to avoid danger or anyone who has proven to be untrustworthy. Therefore, thinking about forgiving someone who harmed us goes against our very instincts. But there are also more personal reasons why forgiveness can be unappealing. 
particularly in cases of being harmed by someone we trusted. We may feel that we have to hang on to our anger because the harm we endured was such a defining event for us. When we have suffered, it can become a central part of our identity. How can we ever be known by someone who doesn't know our pain? And that may mean to us that we have to hang on to it. Memories of abuse may be complex, confusing, and not always accurate. Sometimes even overlaid with blame we place on ourselves. And the thought of having to wade into that toxic brew can make forgiveness seem impossible. And frankly, I'm not suggesting that one should wade into that alone. When the pain is that deep and complicated, a counselor or therapist can be a necessary guide on the path. Finally, we may balk at the idea of forgiving because we misunderstand what forgiveness is. We may think it means that we need to accept what happened to us, that it was okay to declare, it's all good. Or we may think that we need to resume a relationship with the person who harmed us as though nothing ever happened. Or we may think that in order to forgive, we need to make ourselves forget. Or maybe we think we need to take responsibility for the situation and see that it was really our fault. None of those are parts of healthy forgiveness, and frankly, most of them aren't even possible. Given all of those barriers to forgiveness, why should we even go there? Why does Jesus repeatedly urge us to do something that is so hard for us? Forgiveness is hard, brutally difficult in some cases. But, strange though it may seem, the opposite, unforgiveness, comes with an even bigger price tag. It keeps us trapped in a mindset that prevents us from moving forward. It certainly prevents us prevents any healing or flourishing in our relationship with the person who hurt, who hurt us, if we wanted that. But it e- may even prevent us from forming trusting relationships with other people. And, ironically, it continues to give the person who hurt us power over us. When we won't forgive, we yield to our tormentor the power to continue to make us miserable. Lewis Smedes has said that to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. Etching is a process for printmaking where a pattern is made on a sheet of metal, filled with ink, and then pressed onto the paper. Here's how the method for preparing the metal template is described. It's the process of using strong acid to cut the unprotected parts of a metal surface to create a design. Using strong acid to cut into the unprotected parts of a metal surface. I think that is a great description of what unforgiveness does to our souls. It's like a constant drip of battery acid, scarring us and causing us ongoing pain. 
Jesus wants to free us from that pain. And for that to happen, we have to walk the path of forgiveness. We have to follow Jesus on the path of forgiveness. Jesus, who forgave his cruel tormentors, and perhaps just as surprisingly, forgave his closest friends. You know, the ones who deserted him in his darkest hour. A smaller offense from someone close to us may hurt us far more than a bigger offense from a stranger because we've made ourselves vulnerable to them. But Jesus forgave his faithless friends. The first word he speaks to them when he meets them after the resurrection is, Peace, peace be with you. Or maybe in the vernacular, I'm not mad at you. The early Christians who were committed to living out the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount saw forgiveness as an essential part of that. Think, for example, of Stephen, a leader in the early church and a gifted orator. He is dragged before the high priest on trumped-up charges, but he uses it as an opportunity to preach about Jesus. As you can imagine, that doesn't go down well. Here's where we pick up the story in Luke's account. And after they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. It's a remarkable story of faith and faithfulness. And it's a beautiful picture of forgiveness that refuses to demand any kind of payback. Let me highlight a few specifics. The first is that Stephen doesn't wait for his attackers to own up to their wrong and ask for forgiveness before he offers them forgiveness. That may not sit well with us. After all, why should they get off so easily? We may even want to drag out the process so that they can know some of the suffering that we have endured. I'm thinking here of the 50s jazz song, Cry Me a River. Now you say you're sorry for being so untrue. Well, you can cry me a river. Cry me a river because I cried a river over you. One of the problems with this approach in addition to the fact that it doesn't align at all with the forgiveness that Jesus taught, is that it puts all of the initiative on the person who hurt us instead of seeing it as work that we do in ourselves. Getting another person to change isn't the point of forgiveness. It's about focusing on the part that we have control over, the state of our own hearts. Secondly, I notice that he doesn't minimize what they've done. He calls it sin. Again, some wrong notions of forgiveness expect us to say, it didn't matter, it's okay, I'm sure I've done worse. That's not Stephen's approach. True forgiveness acknowledges the magnitude of the wrong and still forgives. I also note that Stephen not only forgives them, but he begs God to be merciful to them. This is true forgiveness. 
We may be willing to bury the hatchet because we're secretly gleeful that the one who has wronged us will ultimately be punished in a higher court. I'll forgive you, but God's going to get you for this in the end. Stephen has so completely forgiven that he has no desire to see them punished. In 1984, Pope John Paul II was the target of a failed assassination attempt by a Muslim militant, Mehmet Aliakka. Aliakka's motives were unclear, but at one point he said he was trying to start a holy war between Christians and Muslims. Given the history of the Crusades, perhaps his reasoning wasn't all that faulty. But his violent act was met not with revenge, but with grace. The pontiff had been rushed to the hospital and undergone life-saving surgery. While he was still in hospital, in his first public statement, he urged people to pray for God's mercy on my brother, Ali Ekka, whom I have already forgiven. Later, the Pope visited him in jail and personally offered his forgiveness, an act that was so countercultural that a picture of it made the front page of Time magazine. Later, the Pope successfully appealed to have Aliakka's sentence reduced. This is forgiveness. You may have noted that so far I've not mentioned any role for the person who caused the harm in the forgiveness process. And I won't apologize for that. I do think that many of our struggles with forgiveness stem from the fact that we think it involves vulnerably engaging with someone we don't even want to be in the same room with. It's important to be reminded that we can be freed from our heavy burden of unforgiveness without ever speaking to the person who harmed us. But sometimes there is a possibility for more an opportunity to share forgiveness. That can come when both parties have done their work. The person who was harmed, honestly facing the magnitude of the harm, but nonetheless letting go of the desire for payback, setting down the incredibly heavy burden of unforgiveness. And for the person who did the harm, it's the work of facing head-on the impact of their action and taking responsibility for it. With that work done on both sides, the together work of rebuilding trust and intimacy can begin. In the initial moments of the pain and betrayal, it may feel as though there is no way the relationship can ever survive. But with both sides doing their work in humility and good faith, the relationship can emerge stronger after the forgiveness. I mentioned earlier that the first century church actively tried to live out the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. But despite that, there was conflict. Conflict between leaders, conflict in the congregations. If you read the early history the history of the early church and the letters written by the apostles to their congregations, a non-trivial amount of the content addresses conflicts. In one sense, that's inevitable. Someone once told me that in a relationship between two people, there are only two ways to avoid conflict. Either one person is so completely cowed by the other that they never express an opinion, or 
the two people have identical opinions about everything, in which case the relationship is meaningless. Much as we may dislike conflict and the pain that often results from it, it actually sounds more appealing than either of those alternatives. And so we choose to live in community with each other. In a disparate community like this one, we, where we may hold many different perspectives, views, and opinions. We do that knowing that we will hurt and disappoint each other, but knowing that the freedom of forgiveness is available to us.